Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Season 8, incidental episode. Jeff Trexler of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. My name's Leonard Sultana, and this is the show where we talk Comic-Cons, con culture, and all the stuff and nonsense that we get to enjoy at such events. Now, we usually run the show on a Sunday, um, and indeed, this weekend, I'm looking forward to talking to James Tin in the 4th, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, at 6 p.m. GMT. Please do join us for that. But every once in a while, we get the chance to run these incidental episodes, these drop-in one-offs, uh, which allow us to uh, talk to some uh, great guests, um, either about uh, upcoming Kickstarters or projects they've got going. Maybe it's just a guest that uh, isn't able to join us within the Sunday confines. This next guest is somebody that um, I reached out to. Uh, we've been uh, mutuals on uh, Twitter mm -hmm. for some time. Um, he's certainly somebody who uh, is uh, known in the, the comics landscape. But I wanted to preface with a little bit of, uh, not a disclaimer, but just my kind of lay of the land. This is a conversation about the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. And the reason why I wanted to preface it is, at the end of the day, I have represented the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. While I haven't been a card-carrying member, uh, in 2018, they um, hosted a number of panels at the MCM Comic Con in London. And as MCM and Repop were organizing and coordinating with the uh, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund about putting the panels on, my name came up as the uh, host for the comic stage of that particular year. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund reached back and said, yep, Leonard can host those. He's good people. That was the quote that was sent out. Now, I took that as a very big endorsement of what I do. While I understand my place in the uh, firmament, I, I understand my uh, place in the pecking order. It was uh, some validation for the, uh, the the things that I do on my side of the, uh, the fence. This year has been a tumultuous uh, year for a great many reasons um, in terms of uh, social and political and health and it's just been a hell of a year. As part of that, um, the comics industry was put into a major upheaval in terms of its business strategy and also uh, some revelations that came out regarding the behavior of uh, staff of the CBLDF. This is a conversation about those revelations, about the, uh, the past of the CBLDF, its present and hopefully its future. Uh, we have ourselves Jeff Trexler who's joining us. Hello there, sir. How are you? Hi. Hi, it's good, to, it's good to see you, good to hear you. I'm glad to be part of the podcast. Well, thank you very much indeed for coming on. Also to explain when the announcement was uh, put forward that you are the interim director of the CBLDF, um, I kind of reached out and said, I'm surprised that more podcasts or more people haven't reached out to you for interviews, which I hadn't actually seen out there. So I, I was a bit surprised that people hadn't talked to you. So I, I thought I'd put my uh, face out there, not expecting you to say yes. But here you are. So thank you very much indeed for coming on. Um, I think first things first, let's explain who you are. Um, if you can give yourself a little bit of an introduction, please. Who is Jeff Traxler? Ah, great. Some of you may know me from the work that I've been doing on various websites, the Newsarama, The Beat, comicsbeat.com, tcj.com, writing about legal issues. I've been doing that for the community since about 2005. 
my own background is I'm an attorney. I started out working with nonprofit organizations uh, and also working with ethics issues. It's been the focus of my career. It's why I went to law school. Um, I came to it from a PhD program. I had a PhD in religious history at Duke, uh, where I studied ethics music, and I got fascinated by nonprofits and how they work and how their missions work and how it changes over time and how they interact with their constituencies. So uh, from law school, I went on, I did, I did work in Russia, devising the new nonprofit laws that I think you know, have largely been um, undone <laughs> in, the, in <laughs> recent years, but, but in the early 90s, we did a lot of good things. Uh, and um, in 2005, yeah, I've been a comics fan all of my life. I've been reading about the industry all of my life uh, in Comics Buyer's Guide and various books. And I, I had hit a point with the Siegel and Schuster lawsuits where uh, dispute over, the dispute over Superman, where I was seeing you know a few too many articles about the trademark and the copyright and the patent that were sort of jumbling those those concepts together. So so I, I decided to start writing about this on my personal website. It quickly got picked up uh, by other websites. Uh, and it's been it's been a wonderful time because helping the legal community over the over helping the comics community over the past 15 years deal with legal issues has has really been one of the highlights of my life because I've gotten so much out of comics. It's done it's shaped how I see the world in so many ways, and I've met so many interesting people in the comics community. So after helping very quietly trying to help creators uh, where I can and and publishers and and people and you know, journalists and people in the industry. Uh, to have an opportunity to do it in a more systematic way through the CBLDF is, is something that I welcome and I look forward to. I, I really I look forward to to a lot of good things over the next few months. Um, when it comes to your relationship then with the CBLDF, you obviously um, you'd written about them, you knew about what their remit was, um, but mm -hmm. I, I'm curious about your actual relationship uh, with the actual organization. Who approached who when it came to um, uh, putting your name forward as the directorship? What? How did that all come about? Mm -hmm. Well, I will. I, you, you had your own disclosure disclaimer at the beginning of the thing, so I will give mine. I have participated in a CBLDF event back in 1996 in Venice, California, talking about sales tax. Uh, when an attorney visited to talk about what they were doing, I was a tax lawyer. That were not, if you did nonprofits, you pr pretty much automatically slotted into the tax thing. I was working for a federal judge at the time. So that was 24 years ago. And all I was was a member of the audience, not a member of the panel. So so um, from there, I, I haven't been involved in the CBLDF. And I've watched it and, and I've written about it. I think in Comics Journal and Comics Beat, I've written some articles about how I think the mission should be changing over time. But I have not been part of the organization. What drew me to it was actually this particular issue. And I'll tell you why. I've been working. And, and I can talk about more about this if you want, but I've been trying to help change the legal strategies and legal approach with respect to sexual harassment for the past couple of decades. Uh, I, I just encountered some really bad things when trying to help some people back around 20 years ago, and I saw that the system was broken. So for the past decade, I've been doing this through the Fashion Law Institute at Fordham School of Law, where we have been uh, working with ways to, we, we helped co-found co the Model Alliance, which has been working with models and with industry to stop sexual harassment of models. One of my students, one of my ethics students, formed the Humans of Fashion Foundation, which reform, which refers uh, people throughout the fashion industry, models, cosmetics workers, whoever, uh, to lawyers and also to psychiatric assistants. And I've been advising Caring, which is a major major uh, uh, international international corporation, this parent company of, of such companies as Gucci and Balenciaga, 
on ethics. I've been their outside ethics advisor for a number of years uh, and have also conducted training. Uh, so it's, it's been a concern of mine. And when I saw that the, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund was going through this this summer, I reached out to them and said, you know, it just so happens I have this experience. This is something where I've been able to do a lot of work also with, the, with governments actually reforming the law, which I'm happy to talk about uh, over the past few years. And if you could use any help in making the transition so that the next executive director who will be there longer term uh, will have a strong foundation, new ethics policies, new procedures uh, that are the cutting edge, sort of the, the best and best practices for, for the, current, the current age, then uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Fair enough. Um, also, just to backtrack for those people who are watching that maybe you watch this show for Comic-Con news, uh, who may not be aware fully of what the uh, CBLDF is. Um, it's a organization, it's a non-profit um, organization formed in 1986 uh, to protect the First Amendment rights of comic creators, publishers and retailers covering legal expenses. Um, Executive uh, Director Charles Brownstein served in that capacity since 2002 into his resignation. Just to bring some uh, context as well in terms of a timeline, um, especially considering uh, what was revealed, uh, what came out uh, this year. And I think part of the big conversation of what I want to bring into is, and it's something that I have talked about a number of times on the, the, the podcast, is the fact that this is a long-term uh, event. It's something that while came to a head in 2020, um, this is all off the back of um, an event that took place at uh, the Mid-Ohio Con uh, in November 25th, 2005, an incident of physical assault of sexual nature with Taki Soma uh, by Charles Brownstein. Uh, in 2000, uh, December 26th of the same year, um, Ronnie Garcia Bourgeois uh, of the Friends of uh, Lulu uh, post on her blog about the incident. In May 2006, after investigation, the Comics Journal posted its foundings about Charles Brownstein, and indeed there was a response from the CBLDF. Certain allegations were brought back to the fund's attention. The board of directors had been dealing with the issue since the day after the incident and has taken the matter very seriously. The board retained an outside investigator to conduct a thorough investiga independent investigation, which has been concluded. Appropriate actions have been taken based on the results of the investigation, but to protect the privacy rights of all parties involved, we cannot comment, uh, comment further. That was uh, May 2006. Um, 2018, uh, the Comics Journal reprinted the 2006 article, uh, which led to the foundation of the Women's Empowerment Fund. Um, in 2020, however, um, the um, post was resurrected as part of an ongoing conversation about sexual harassment in the in the industry, um, certainly in regards to um, a number of uh, incidents of a number of uh, uh, people, not necessarily just uh, Charles Brownstein. But Charles Brownstein's name came up. The articles were resurrected. And in 2020, um, uh, Charles, in June 2020, uh, Charles Brownstein stepped down. Um, it, I think the thing... I mean, I, there's several things I want to get into. And we've kind of talked about the headings in which we want to uh, get into uh, the the whole thing. And I think we'll we'll start with... Well, we'll... I, <laughs> I want to jump forward. I want to talk about the uh, that um, that whole revelations that came forward and how it was handled. But let's actually talk about a little bit further about the continued operation of the uh, CBLDF because I think there are many people uh, that feel that the damage that has been done 
to the CBLDF is too great. It's sustained too long over a period of time, outweighing the good that has been done. What's your view on this and how do you feel the organization can recover moving forward? Mm -hmm. This is something that I've thought about even before, it's an issue I've thought about even before the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Um, because if you've worked in this area as long as I have, you've seen a lot of things. Um, you've seen a lot of things with whether it's nonprofits, small and large, companies, small and large. Uh, and part of the reason why I do what I do uh, and, and why I've spent so much of my career doing this, a lot of it admittedly behind the scenes, some of it occasionally, you, you, the recordings out there of me doing public testimony for New York City on, on harassment law changes, uh, is that the system, like I said, is broken. And there is a normal way that, ha that this has been handled for many, many years. And uh, I, I encountered this when I, my, the very first case that I had on this, when I, I had, there were some women who, who approached and had some issues, so went to counsel. And the counsel did not react like I thought. I thought the counsel would say, oh, well, okay, we'll have an, this is a credible story, uh, well documented, we'll have an investigation, we'll get rid of this person and these people, the, the complainants will be taken care of. Instead, the lawyer, you know, leans back and says, well, you know, Jeff, as a lawyer, you know that my fiduciary duty is to the corporation and it's in the best interest of the corporation that people who bring this, this complaint are, are removed. And I found out that the way they handled this as a matter of course was whoever brought a complaint, a credible complaint, was uh, removed from the organization. And the person who did it, despite being something of a recidivist, doing it again and again and again, uh, uh, was just got a slap on the wrist and then could keep going because that was their person. That's the person they hired to do that job. And I realized that this was not just one organization, it was many organizations. Uh, I happened to be visiting the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission when the women came in for the first class action lawsuit against Walmart on sexual harassment. This is a long time ago. And, you know, I, and I learned there's company after company where women had encountered this, where men had encountered it, non-binary people, trans people, everybody is encountering this issue when they are making these complaints. So uh, I have thought long and hard. There have been some long nights of the soul on this one. And one thing I realized was that there are, member, there are a number of large corporations who have baked this into their business model. And so every day you go out there and there are grocery stores, restaurants, banks, uh, entertainment companies uh, that you do not know that what you have heard about with the, the Come Up with Legal Defense Fund in several occasions, you know, we're talking about dozens. When you multiply it over the large companies, we're talking about thousands of interactions like this over the years. And you don't know it. And it just gets to continue because large organizations is very, very difficult to make a difference. I've been fortunate to work with some where they brought me in specifically as an outside voice to make those changes uh, and to make sure that everything's going well, but those are the exceptions to the rule. So uh, it's a small organization, yes, a small organization. You can identify the person, you can close it, you can send the money somewhere else, but over time you're gonna get an environment where it's just the large organizations left. It's the small organizations where one person can come in and make a large difference. Um, so that's why I, I do this. Uh, I, I thought long, uh, I, I thought a lot about this before uh, working with this uh, comic book legal defense fund before offering to do what I'm going to do. Um, but I 
don't think, just as I don't think it's fair that people go through the horrors of this. And I don't, you know, I get people who say that these organizations should continue because I think that about a number of companies that you probably do business with every day, but they're not going away. So I'm going to do what I do what I can so that the good of the comic book legal defense fund can live on and, and we can help the comics community uh, for the future. Sure. Um, I think for myself, um, it's the, I mean, I personally believe that there is a place for um, the organization of the uh, key, uh, comics book legal defense fund, as well as there is for hero initiative, Basically, any support that uh, comic creators can get financially, legally, in any corner at all, um, I think, I mean, th I believe that there there is more than enough space for those because there is no um, support system for um, uh, creators in the comics industry. It's such a, we've discovered this in this year, that it's such a fragile um, ecosystem mm -hmm. that any support at all um, uh, really should be encouraged um, and uh, uh, move forward, which is why the conversation about the continued operation, whether it should be dismantled, um, whether the, the, the harm that's being done outweighs the good that it already has uh, in its uh, in its cachet. Um, it's a difficult conversation to have because we need as many organizations as we can to support the creators moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, can I, I think they also, oh yeah, by all means, go, go, go. Can I add something with respect to that? Because I, it comes back to something you said in the introduction when you said that the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund exists to help creators with First Amendment issues. Uh, I don't know if it, the post is up yet. I know that it was scheduled to go up, that they were working on putting it up sometimes today. But I actually just did a post for our website on that very issue, on how I see the mission. Uh, I don't believe, now again, and I'm going to, as I, as I say in the post, this is Jeff Trexler speaking. This is not the official position of anybody. I, this is just me. People know that this is what I think, but this is not an official sort of directive of anything yet. But I've spent a lot of time in the mission ever since I've heard that the Comic Book League Defense Fund could only do certain narrow things that are connected to the First Amendment. Uh, because remember, my only interaction with it in terms of public events was a, tax, a sales tax issue. And I don't believe, as a nonprofit attorney, that that is correct. Uh, I believe that its charter and its ethos, sort of the, the, the core concerns that the Comic Legal Funds Fund has had since its founding, um, it's, it's concerned with helping the comics community with legal issues, with legal rights. And that goes beyond the legal rights associated with free speech, free press, uh, access to comics and the comics industry. They go beyond the First Amendment. Remember, the Supreme Court has described intellectual property as a constitutional right. Uh, contracts are protected by the Constitution, uh, and equal access to contracts is the heart of civil rights. So uh, civil rights, in fact, if you look at the first civil rights law in 1866, it's about protecting, act, protecting everybody's right to contract so that you can't be discriminated against. So I am. I believe part of what we can do going forward is to recover the mission, to reboot it. The, the, the metaphor I've been using throughout is we want, we want to reboot the, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. This isn't about changing the mission or expanding the mission. This is about recapturing what the mission originally was and expressing it to the fullest in the, for, for the needs of the contemporary time. Um, so you mentioned, you mentioned Hero Initiative and other charities that are doing a lot to help creators 
who have in the, in the comics industry, they've suffered a lot financially. Sure. And I think that that is important. And, you know, my approach to the nonprofit world is there's room for a lot of nonprofits and people definitely should support the Hero Initiative and other organizations that are helping creators in need. Uh, we also are going to be helping creators in need. And just as it's important that there is economic help available, economic assistance available to creators who've fallen into poverty, what we want to do at the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is help creators avoid that fate. You know, give them the legal tools so that they can approach their contracts more intelligently, so that they know what they're getting into and they know what to avoid, um, so they can lead better lives and not need that kind of assistance when they get older. Sure. Um, in terms of where we've seen 2020 uh, happen, um, it has been, like I said in my intro, a tumultuous year, um, and we've seen uh, corporate layoffs, we've seen... Um, uh, conventions cancelled, titles cancelled, uh, the rise of the bookstore trade, uh, <laughs> the slow mm -hmm. death of the direct uh, sales market, and uh, the, uh, uh, the the how uh, Diamond has uh, evolved and had to change, and other uh, distributors, and all sorts of legal issues uh, regarding uh, the, the the evolvement, the evolution, the rapid evolution of the industry in 2020. Where do you see the CBLDF uh, having a future in that regard, in that um, uh, industry which has been so negatively affected by recent events? Mm -hmm. This is, and, and coming at it from fashion, uh, it's been a really, it's been very incredibly helpful for me to see a different industry and an industry that's going through its own seismic shifts. Uh, this is a time when, despite what's happening at some of the at the largest scale in terms of in terms of the comics industry like like in fashion there's still a lot of people who love the medium they want to tell stories they want to make clothes and there's an intersection um you know i've done a, a bunch of work with geek fashion and there's an intersection in terms of licensed products and merchandise and people wanting to uh, cross between the two that will not go away and what historically when you go through a process like this where there's a lot of churn where people are thinking rethinking the infrastructure of the industry that's the time where there's an incredible amount of opportunity to do something new, to build new structures, to create new properties, to do business in a different way. Um, and you think about it. I got started writing about the in comics, writing about the Siegel and Schuster cases. Siegel and Schuster cases. When did Superman? When was Superman created? At the height of the Great Depression. You know, yeah. when you have this kind of economic restructuring, that's when you need to know the law even more than ever. So not just in order to understand what's given to you so that maybe you can even help create new legal structures so that everybody involved in a transaction can benefit from them uh, in a way that's more equitable, more fair. So there's a tremendous need for us now. Uh, and I want to help, help meet that need for the comics community. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip forward to the transparency element of what um, I was going to bring up. We'll move to the actual remit of... Uh, Mm -hmm. the organization a little bit later because i think possibly the biggest and most important aspect of the conversation will be how the cbldf um, can and should change and evolve in order to be serviced in the future and this also does uh, include greater transparency in terms mm -hmm. of any issues and complaints uh, in the future um just to clarify um about charles brownstein and about the actual organization as well we have the board of directors um but the actual operation 
of the CBLDF, as far as I'm aware and from my uh, uh, conversations with people, is it's actually a very small organization mm -hmm. in that when um, charges and accusations and conversations about Charles Brownstein were brought up, it was effectively Charles Brownstein that was handling the internal investigation, as it were. Um, is, was that accurate? Was that the case? And what was the kind of the buffer in terms of the actual the accusations going forward? What was the actual um, organization at that time? There's a way that these things are traditionally done. And, and this is what um, I think a lot of people may not understand just in terms of, of the way sexual harassment has has been handled so i'll explain some of it i know it was really new to me when i got into it because frankly i thought the system was a lot more fair than i than it turned out to be uh, but the way these things are typically handled is you will you know complaint will come in um it's done in internally and that made that whole system which is something that people think it arose in the 1970s it actually went back decades before uh high, largely connected with the fashion trade actually when women and others in unions were trying to come up with a, a, a system so that you could have third parties investigate complaints of sexual harassment and um, discipline people and remove you know, people in factories who were, who were exploiting them. And what evolved out of that was a system that's basically rigged where it was all done internally. And maybe you'd hire people to do it, but these the people who tended to get hired were the people who were coming up with results that are more favorable to corporations. So the, the system, the system, I uh, there's not a lot to trust about it. So one of the things that I want to do with the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is what I've been doing outside of the fund, which is coming up with ways for the checks and balances to have checks and balances. I want to get outside eyes on things so that if we have a complaint that comes through again, uh, then I, I, whether it's about somebody in the organization or say somebody's experienced something in the comics industry and they want to have, uh, they want to have help. You know, they, they, they went to a convention and they went to an editor and the editor hit on them and said, you know, come, come to my hotel room and do this. Um, you know, how do I handle this? Well, we want to be able to have a system so that uh, these things can be investigated in a credible way and that the investigation itself and the results of the investigation and any discipline that results from it can have other people looking at it and express their voice in terms of whether they think it was a credible one or not a credible one, whether something else needs to be done. That, those are the kind of structures we've been talking about since before I was brought on board, uh, that this is what we want to do. This is what we have to do. In fact, if there was an openness to that, I wouldn't be here because that's the only way I was going to be a part of it is if that kind yeah. of approach was going, was going to uh, be taken. Um, I apologize. I've just been getting some text, so I, I thought I had that silence before. I, it's like I can imagine that um, your communication has been ringing uh, left, right, and center pretty much ever since that you yes. uh, took on the, <laughs> uh, uh, the, the, the job. Um, I, I think something that um, maybe people don't recognize is just how pervasive uh, the... Um, abuse that uh, Charles Brownstein did. It wasn't just one event. Um, it wasn't just one person. There were various um, members of the CBLDF team, especially numbers of people that um, did work at the uh, conventions, which kind of where I mm -hmm. came into the, the conversation, um, uh, doing um, work on the, the convention circuit. 
people who had been um, emotionally and sexually mm-hmm. um, harassed and um, intimidated um, to the point where um, non-disclosure um, uh, forms were filled, agreements from um, broken, and it, it's, a per, it, it's a pervasive thing. And the fact that it was such a, a, over a period of prolonged time is the thing that's really certainly rankled with myself. Um, and I think also a lot of people are very concerned about the fact that members of the executive board and advisory board um, were made aware of these um, accusations. Uh, they were contacted independently by the employees, by the people that had been um, um, abused. And the question whether they served any influence on Charles not being removed um, is a big question where's that currently standing in terms of the current board of uh, advisory um at the advisory board and the executive board mm-hmm. yeah i've there's a there's a way things have been done it's, part part of the way i say this is uh, i think i mentioned i went to Yale law school and there's some news i don't know if you've been following the news at Yale law school but there's a professor there that there have been a number of complaints about for years uh by by students a very very powerful professor who can determine in many ways people's careers in terms of who he recommends for what and today they announced that there was finally some disciplinary actions after of course an independent investigation and the, the whole disciplinary action is he gets to take off for two years you know that's that's the disciplinary action that he doesn't get to teach for two years and then when he comes back he'll be teaching large classes as opposed to small ones and for me it was a bit of a symbol of the way this is often handled uh, in nonprofits universities for-profit companies where what you do is you delegate it to somebody that person comes up with a recommendation the recommendation is often some kind of discipline that uh, they may think is harsh, but to anybody else watching it just seems kind of ridiculous. And uh, particularly when you stack it up against all the people somebody has hurt. Uh, and and the credibility of the organization goes down even further after the result of the investigation. I've seen this play out again and again and again. So when you talk about what what happened with the board, uh, I wasn't there, obviously, so I don't you know, know who knew what when because that you know a lot of those things in terms of conversations to which I was not privy. Uh, but what I can say, based on what I've seen so far, is it looks like it followed this pattern. It's that you hear a complaint, you refer it out to somebody to investigate, they make a recommendation, uh, and that's the way things have been done for decades, for a long, long, long time. Uh, so it's a systemic thing. It's not so much a personal thing uh, with any one individual. It's just the way that if you're a lawyer, you were trained by your senior partners that this is how you handle this thing. Uh, This is not the way I like to see things done. Uh, This is what I've been trying to change uh, in various companies and working with lawyers and uh, changing the systems and even changing the law. Um, But um, whatever happened in the past, I am determined will not happen again if I have anything to do with it. We're going to set up a, a way of dealing with these things that is transparent that has uh, a number of different eyes looking at it to make sure that it's just not a closed system. Uh, and so that when, when, we, when we do encounter this, uh, there will be a number of opportunities in the system for 
the complainant to express the satisfaction with the way it's being handled, as well as outside people who are not part of the CBLDF to say, hey, actually, you need to be taking this more seriously. Sure. Um, we've, we've got a question from Michael P. But like I say, we're taking questions. Do please, uh, any comments that you want to put in, by all means, uh, do uh, let us know. I mean, number one, we've got uh, Ms., uh, Bitspitter, uh, who's a, a long-time uh, fan of the show. Got all work, but, uh, so can't keep watching. But it sounds like CBLDF is in very good hands now. So there we go. Um, uh, comment for yourself. But um, Michael P. brings up the, the uh, a question which I was going to ask, and it's a, a, a fairly... I'll, I'll dovetail into it, um, basically asking how will the board be held accountable in the future? Uh, the previous board did not do their job. From what I can gather, the board is very much an advisory uh, bunch of uh, a collective of people in that in the actual organization of the uh, the running of the organization, they weren't necessarily um, as part, part of that um, day to day operation. Mm -hmm. um, it was more about the advisory about any legal cases going forward, any judgment calls um, uh, going forward. But, um, I mean, the question I would like to ask is, have you been in contact with the board and found out, basically asked them what they knew and what they didn't? Mm -hmm. Or is that outside of your remit, as it were? No, no. I've, what I, I've been given access to, uh, to documents, to internal material, basically unfettered. So I can see the way things have been unfolding in real time. I've had conversations with board members. And so I've been trying to investigate as much as I can. Remember, one of the first things you do when you're a young attorney is due diligence. That's, that's the first year they basically we do transactional work. They stick you in rooms. That's changed a little bit because a lot of it's done by computers now uh, and AI. But for me, I would be stuck in rooms with giant cabinets of decades of documents. And I'd have to read every one and look for legal problems. So. So my, my first impulse when I, when I take something on is to read as much as I can and talk to as many people as I can to find out everything that went on. Because remember, as I'm a historian uh, before a lawyer, before I became a lawyer, and the best way to avoid things happening is to understand what happened uh, even better than, than anyone has before. So I am determined, I've been thinking about the structure uh, and what we're going to be doing is well, twofold. One, you, you've mentioned several times about the organization almost being synonymous with the executive director. But I think that's a mis I don't think I think the description is correct. But I think as a as the rule for running organizations, that's not, that's not the way organizations should be run. The writer should not be the ship. They're not the same thing. What you should have is an organization. Uh, and here it's going to sound a little bit wonky. And I try not to like this, but it just works for me in terms of systems. Uh, I, I, I'm try trying to take a distributed approach to it so that we have a number of wonderful staff people who have been amazing uh, since I've, I've come on board. We, we talk a lot. We talk about a lot about what they're going to be doing. And the idea is that they will be, do, or they are doing right now, uh, work that they're very talented, they're very good at, uh, that is uh, connected with our mission, um, and is actually going to be even doing more things than we have been doing in the past few years, sort of living our mission out to the fullest. And over time, we'll bring in a new executive director for a longer term. I'm just here temporarily. Uh, and my first conversation with them, I said, I will not take this job for a longer period of time. I am only here temporarily because I think it's crucial for what I want to do, that there's no sense that I'm trying to curry favor with somebody to keep a job or that uh, you know I have some sort of self-interest. And, 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 and no, 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 no. I'm here to do one thing. 
and that's to make the CBLDF better for the longer term, and then they're going to bring on somebody longer term. And that's it. So, uh, but, but key to that, the only way that's going to work is if we have a staff that has a lot more power and a lot more responsibility than they had when I came in. Uh, and so we're working on that right now. Uh, we've, we have an agenda. Uh, we're doing various projects. I know a lot of it's me right now, uh, but you'll be seeing them very, very soon uh, as they talk cool. about it. Wonderful educational initiatives, member initiatives, uh, legal cases, uh, everything so on down the line. Uh, sure. The other well, uh, question that, uh, oh, so we were talking no, no, about. Go, go ahead. Oh, the other thing I want to talk about was information because, you, you know, what did, what did the board know? I guarantee you, because again, I've worked with companies for decades now, most boards of directors don't know what's going on in their organizations in terms of sexual harassment. They, a board of organization exists to set the general policy and then the day-to-day -day operations are one, run by the employees. And in larger companies, you'll have you know, a vice president of human resources and then various people under the vice president and various people they subcontract to, information filters up. And quite frankly, employee discipline and sexual harassment is not seen as a priority by most companies. Uh, it's just not something that the board's thinking about. Unless maybe it touches the, uh, you know, the, the CEO has, has had an affair with somebody and it affects the business and is, we're seeing now in several, yeah. several studios. Uh, but in terms of, everyday you know manager here in some city that's just not something that's that's thought about so what i want to do is create a system where that it, that that corrects for that so we're going to increase our reporting uh the scope of our reporting the kind of reporting we do on a quarterly and an annual basis uh internally but we're also uh going to set up inter external reports which you see uh and in terms of the information flow you know, most board members, they don't want to hear every, they, you know, they're most board members of any organization or several boards, they're running on their own companies, they don't have time to do what a full-time employee can do. So what we're going to do is use technology to our advantage. We've already started digitizing all, all of our records. We're going to have all of our rec records digital and accessible in real time so that if a board sees something in a report where it says, that looks like an issue, or if they just want to check in from time to time, they can access all of the information that's available to the full-time employees, to the staff, uh, so that they know what's going on and so that if they have any concerns, they can get that information and respond to it if they feel like a manager is not doing their, their jobs effectively as they could be, uh, particularly in terms of ethics. So we have, again, multiple ways setting, set up to do that and taking advantage of contemporary information technology is gonna be part of it. Fair enough. Um... I think it's safe to say that the day-to-day -day operations of the fund can't rest solely in the, the, the hands of one individual. And it's like you say, you're going to be uh, implementing more on the team that you have to hand. Um, Omar Hass has asked a question. I'm going to kind of dovetail into it. Um, the, uh, what safeguards are you planning to put in place so that consolidation of power and authority will no longer reside in the hands of a single individual who controls the flow of information in both directions. And indeed, the, the question from Omar Hassar is, would you consider employing an outside panel review uh, to, uh, to rule on what if the board is doing? That is, that's, a, hang on a second. Would you consider employing an outside panel uh, review panel to rule on if what the board is doing is not out yeah. of line? So I yeah. think basically just that, yeah. I am, because it's what I've been doing for years before even coming to the Complex Legal Defense Fund, helping organizations, helping companies, as an outside voice, 
uh, telling them this is what I think should be done. This is what isn't being done well. This is how this is a problem in the works. This is an ethics issue nobody's thinking about yet. You know, um, this is this is what I do. This is my career. You know, I, I'm very concerned about this issue. So what I want to do is uh, bring that same sensibility and the same best practices to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. So am I in favor of having an outside uh, committee, outside voices, taking a look at the board and providing you know, kind of a Jiminy, Jiminy Cricket, you know, conscience role? Yeah, certainly, uh, because it's what I do. You know, it's what I've done for years uh, in fashion and other industries. And I think it has to be done here at the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund because of, because of its prominence in the comics community. And I hope it can be a model for other organizations going forward. So yeah, certainly, no question. Uh, that is absolutely crucial. Fair enough. Um, I'm, I'm looking through my notes because I want to make sure that I hit as many um, uh, points as we can because I, oh, sure. I do want to try and uh, get into. Um, uh, I don't want to. Uh, I, I don't want to. I don't want to disrespect the um, difficulties that people have gone through, um, such as Takisoma and various others. So I want to make sure that I have some uh, 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 some notes to hand. Um, this is also off the back of, I've been speaking uh, to a couple of other people who have uh, put four questions, and this was uh, one, which I'm wondering where this comes under your remit, certainly, as you say, the interim director. Um, how does the CBDLDF, CBLDF, that's always going to trip me up, uh, mm -hmm. plan to foster a culture of inclusivity and diversity? Mm -hmm. Diversification is another thing that I have emphasized from my first outreach to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. And it also factored into my decision not to uh, want to be considered and absolutely refuse to take the, uh, the longer term position if it were offered to me. Uh, and it's this, uh, diversification is essential. The comic book industry has from its beginning been a place where people from all backgrounds ideally should be able to come in uh, people who are traditionally seen as outsiders have been able to come in in various ways over the years uh, to varying degrees. It's not perfect, uh, but it has been a place where it's held this appeal as a place where people who are sort of on the outside of society, who are marginalized in society, can find a voice. Again, the comics community has, the comics industry has, it's not perfect, it's had a, a lot of problems, but you can see people from various backgrounds trying to, to use it, trying to express themselves in it. Uh, for many, many, many years. Um, so I think it's only right for a community that, for, for an industry and a community that is defined by participation and has a, such a universal appeal to have that diversity reflected in its organizations. Um, I'm doing this because for now, for a temporary period, because this just happens to be what I do. I mean, this is why I went into law, nonprofit management and ethics. Uh, if I didn't have this background, I wouldn't have suggested myself for this temporary position, for this very short-term position. Uh, but I think that they definitely need to diversify um, all across the board, uh, whether it's in terms of member involvement and making sure that even people who aren't part of staff have a greater voice. Everybody needs to have a voice in this organization, uh, whatever their background, whatever their interests, all the way up through the board of directors. So 100% uh, in agreement with the importance of diversification. Uh, I have strongly recommended that to the board. Uh, and I'm going to continue to do so. Fair enough. Um, in talking about the remit of the organization then, um, I've been approached by a number of people uh, to discuss a number of the, the various cases that the CBLDF have taken on and what jurisdiction uh, they feel they actually serve. 
um, as well as what supporters of the organisation feel that the organisation need to weigh in in and indeed perhaps actively avoid. Um, at what point has protecting the First Amendment, Amendment come at the expense of the actual men and women of the comics industry and how can that ship be righted? Mm -hmm. One of it, one way I think is uh, the way that I address in the post that I hope, again, I'm, I, and I do apologize because I know a number of you are making comments and I want to, I would love to see them, but I didn't want to open a YouTube window and turn this off and <laughs> mess it up. So no, it's, I hope you don't understand that, that, yeah. that, that, I, that I can't see that. Um, but now no, I got talking about YouTube and I lost my train of thought. So if you could repeat that again, <laughs> I can, I can do that. Um, basically about how um, the, the, oh, the, the role of the, the, the remit of the, the organization right. and in, and how it's um, sometimes the protecting the first amendment has yeah. come at the expense of the, the, uh, the men and women of the comics industry. <clears throat> One way I talk about in that, in that post that I, it either just came out or will come out or, or very, very soon. And I think that you know, law is very specialized in terms of what lawyers tend to handle. I, I tend to be a bit of a generalist. It comes with being a nonprofit person. But uh, so a First Amendment person will handle, a, a litigator will handle a very small set of cases. Somebody in employment law will handle a very small set of cases in employment law unless they're an in-house counselor or VP and NHR. So uh, everything tends to be narrow. And I think what's happened over the years is at least in terms of the general pattern, what's happened with the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, it tend, has tended to follow the narrowness of legal practice itself. So it only does a certain type of First Amendment case as if we were traditional First Amendment lawyers entering the business in like 1982 or something, uh, which is a very narrow type of approach compared to the way even civil rights and First Amendment is seen today. I think we need to reboot that. I think we need to get back to the original expansive vision. Uh, and I think it is, you know, in terms of the way things have been hurt, I think one of the biggest, biggest ways people have been hurt is they've come to the Legal Defense Fund for help. They said, you're the Legal Defense Fund. You're here to help us with various legal issues uh, with our legal rights. And then you're saying you won't help us. Um, I think that has been a, a problem. Uh, I think another another issue with respect to it, and this is something very sensitive to, and those, I know there's some people out there, even in comics, who've known me since the 1980s, and, and know that I am, for somebody who reads a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, you know, comics, I love my Grant Morrison, all that stuff, you know, uh, and and I, 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 I read some things that are, are sort of way out there uh, in terms of psych, what, psychedelia or, or whatever. Um, I have a very boring life. I am incredibly boring, incredibly dull. Uh, I don't do anything in terms of my own uh, personal life that anything anyone would find particularly interesting. Uh, and, and part of that's deliberate because I feel like if you're going to be trying to help people have greater access to things, if you're trying to create help, help people with freedom, you don't want to have it look like you're out there just trying to get freedom to do certain things yourself. So uh, it just helps build trust in what you do. And I think in the First Amendment, there are a couple, there are several different types of people who go for First Amendment work. And there's sort of the First Amendment work who believe in principle that it's, we have to have diverse voices. We, we, are, we don't want to lose voices because, uh, because they're being left out. And I get that and I respect that. And there are other people who are all about freedom because they just like to be free. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to do certain things without constraint. Uh, and uh, I, I don't, to the extent that that 
has been what we're associated with, I, I think we got to move past that. Um, you know, one of the things, and I, th I told you I, I have a back background in religious history, and one of the things we encounter again and again in religious history is people have um, ethical concerns. They want to do good in a particular way. They want to help communities. And in the end, they do things that hurt those communities. That is a recurring pattern. Um, free speech that may have happened to a certain degree in some ways, but it's not the first time it's happened and it won't be the last. But I want to do whatever we can to make sure it doesn't happen again on our watch. Fair enough. Um, I'm also really curious, and you have kept mentioning that it, this is an interim position for yourself. You're not taking it on as a long-term position. I'm curious how much uh, you can do in the time that you have allocated yourself uh, as the interim board director and how you can put something in place um, from the position that you are coming at from what you've described to us um, and how that can hold once you step away from the position. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it has to do with institution building. Uh, this is uh, something that, you know, I come, I come from Amish country, my Pennsylvania Dutch family for years. You know, this is a land of farm building. This is a band, you know, you, know, you wanna, you're very focused on infrastructure, making things happen. Uh, community and infrastructure, very, very key to me. So the way, the only way this can work is if uh, we have, well, one thing that's great and I'm so relieved about uh, since starting in is we have a fantastic team. And that's part of the battle, having people you trust who can do the work and who are enthusiastic uh, and, and committed to doing even more than has been done before. Uh, we have that team in place and I, I look forward to working with them to making a lot of good things happen over the next few months. Um, I think without that, it'd be the challenge would be even greater than it normally would be. Um, so if we have people who are doing things and they've been doing these things repeatedly, um, they have been engaged in certain projects, they've built certain things. So we have that institutional inertia. It then gets harder for one person to come in and take complete control. Uh, it becomes harder for a person to come in and just say, well, I'm getting rid of all these people and I'm just going to do it myself because you get rid of the people, the things don't get done. Um, and you also will have people who I think will come to be better known to the comics community and it will raise some questions if those people are suddenly made to disappear. Um, you know, an, a director, an executive director, interim or otherwise, is not, you know, a nonprofit Thanos, shouldn't be a nonprofit Thanos, definitely. You know, they can't make the board disappear. They shouldn't be able to make staff disappear. Uh, and I feel like the more we are doing in as short a time as possible, the greater the likelihood we will not repeat the mistakes of the past. Okay. Um, the section I want to move on to next is the one which for myself, I feel, I mean, while I said that transparency would be for many the most important part of the uh, conversation, for myself, this is the uh, big focus of the conversation, seeing as the hurt and abuse that has ha uh, suffered to Taki and others took place over such a prolonged period of time um, with uh, Taki and others ignored, uh, gaslit and dismissed while Charles Brownstein and others were allowed to continue without any real oversight that I can uh, be aware of. Um, considering that we have, I've been speaking to uh, Booth members, for example, that uh, had some real future in the industry. Um, they were wanting careers in comics mm -hmm. And they were effectively, they, they had their dreams crushed by the behavior of individuals. Um, and I mean, in one regard, one just left the industry completely. This is somebody who's 
family is in comics and this person left the industry completely and I believe is working she's on a farm at this point, as far away from comics as possible, <clears throat> purely off the back of this, uh, the, the, the actions of this individual. I think what I would want to make sure is that is that um, Charles Blaunstein does not simply slink away into the shadows uh, as seems to be the possibility with his um, resignation. I want to know if there's going to be any follow-up in terms of the communication with these individuals, um, if there has been any conversation with them, um, considering that um, all of this has come from resurrected posts at the end of the day. Um, and I know this one's going to be difficult. Any actual any um, recrimination can be achieved in terms of the damage to reputation, to livelihoods uh, on behalf of those people. Mm -hmm. I and and here I, I'm going to be. I want to balance. Yeah, so that that was that was a big yeah. thing to come at you. I'm sorry. But, but, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Here I want to balance transparency with respect, because again, I'm usually on the other side of the table on this. I'm the outside voice. I'm the person representing the women and the person or or men and you know anybody. Uh, like I said, this is a harassment affects everybody. And if I sometimes just say women, it's a shorthand for the fact that just historically that's where this started in terms of the conversation in law, but this affects non-binary, it affects trans, it affects men, it affects everybody. Uh, and, and, I, and I don't want that to be overlooked. Um, this is incredibly important to me because this is part of the reason I, I, was, I was just, just having a, um, compliant conversations about this. Part of the reason this is illegal is that this is, it's, it's cutting off people's futures, uh, which is why things like um, restorative justice, I, I can tell you that that has been a conversation uh, um, throughout, even before my, my coming here, was the importance of restorative justice. Uh, apologies, I'm a very big believer in apologies, in, in apologies, uh, huge believer in apologies. Um, a lot of lawyers. I mean, I think I think that I think that's the thing that hurt the most is that we never even got that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, you know, I, I wasn't part of this, and yet I look at this and I can say, I am sorry. You know, I am sorry that this happened to all of you. Those of, those of you I know, those of you I don't know, I'm sorry that this has hurt the community. You know, this never should have happened. This was wrong. And I think part of it with apologies, and and I don't mean to, to slip onto the, the lawyer thing, because I I can explain things, but they're never excuses, uh, because I've worked yeah. so hard to change them. Uh, but it is a common thing in law for lawyers and law professors to say you should never apologize, because an apology can be used against you uh, for purposes of li corporate or personal liability in a lawsuit. And to that I say, well, you know, if people apologized, if people recognized what they were doing wrong, you might have to not have to deal with so many lawsuits to begin with because you'd be doing the right thing from the beginning. You know, you'd be making things better. You'd be you'd be keeping it so people wouldn't have to go off to a farm or quit something that they love. I mean, I I can name names. I've worked in this a long time. And I can tell you stories that would probably break you. Um, there are stories here that I know uh, that have broken a lot of people. Um, and it's, it's hard and it's wrong. Um, 
And it's part of the reason why, uh, and I take it very, very, very seriously. Like I said, this is not the role I usually play. I'm not speaking on behalf of the organization. I'm training it, I'm changing it. I'm working with government to come up with new systems. Um, but in this position, I will say that as somebody who's seen the way organizations have handled it, um, I believe in apologies. I believe in restorative justice. I also believe that it is not the organization's place to say that to a person, hey, you went through this, but now there's a new person, and why don't you come and be our new, you know, symbol? And no, that's not, no, 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 no. I respect the people who've been through this too much. So uh, with respect to that, I'm going to leave anything that has to do with the victims. Um, I'm a big believer in agency and people having voices. Uh, and if people want to to stay with themselves and never want to interact with us again, I get it. If people want to talk to us, I, I'm here. And whether it has affected you just because you've watched what has happened in horror or whether something has happened to you that nobody knows about yet or whether something has happened to you that people do know about, I am, I am here to listen. I am here to talk. Uh, I am here to tell you that there is no excuse. What's the, been the level of communication so far? Um, or has your job at the moment been a case of dealing with the framework and dealing with the actual organization and working in that regard? What's been the balance between getting that in place and, deal and actually having the opening up of the dialogue with um, those that have been affected? And I'm, I'm simply going to say, and, and this is one where, and please, this is not a matter This is where the legal hat comes on. No, 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 no. Actually, this is not the legal hat. This is actually not the legal hat. This is, the, this is actually out of respect. I, I am not... I'm a big believer in personal privacy, particularly when you've been through something like this. Uh, and I'm a big believer that uh, any, any conversations in that um, whether they happen, whether they don't happen, whether there's outreach or there's not outreach, I think it really needs to be private. And this is not the lawyer hat. It has nothing to do with the lawyer hat. This is the human hat. Um, this, is, this is me saying that uh, it is not my place. Um, it is not my place to say, um, uh, oh, well, there's this person and Here's how things are. Why? Why am I, I'm not? It is not the organization's place to speak for that individual. Uh, let me give you a story. Um, you know that if you look in if you look in the history of reform of sexual harassment law, one of the things I helped do, both behind the scenes and publicly, was advocate for a number of changes, uh, um, which actually got enacted in New York City, New York State, and then became models elsewhere for independent contractors and non-disclosure agreements. And one of the, with respect to non-disclosure agreements, uh, there had been a proposal to ban non-disclosure agreements completely. And one thing I realized was that having worked in this area was that there are a number of victims of harassment who actually are the ones who request the non-disclosure agreements because they don't want to be stigmatized. They don't want this to be defining them for the rest of their lives. They want to be able to stay in the job if at all possible. If they have to leave or choose to leave. Um, they want to do so under conditions where they still retain their professional identity and they're not defined by the person who was harassed by this person for the rest of their days online forever and ever on that. And so what I recommended was that that person have the agency. That person can request 
a non-disclosure agreement. And if one is there, they can choose not to follow it. Um, that person has the voice, that person has the power. And so when it comes to transformative justice, I believe um, that is something where that's completely uh, the domain of the, the, the people involved. Uh, and I simply, it's just not the organization's place to say, um, this is how things are, or this is the conversations, uh, unless that's something that is coming directly from those people. I believe, a big believer in the victim's voice. And again, that's not the lawyer hat, that's the human's hat, no. because I've seen the, the impetus in these things is often for the organization to take control of the narrative. It's for the lawyers to take control of the narrative. And I am all about, before the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund and after the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, I am all about the victims having the voice. And so that's where I want it to be. Understandable. Um, I think also people are looking at the uh, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund right now and seeing how it can go forward. Mm -hmm. um, and also it's own, uh, not only the relationship of the industry with the uh, CBLDF, but also fans and followers. Uh, we've got Into the Blue Mister uh, saying, my faith in the CBLDF has been dented by this. Their booth at uh, SDCC was always one of the first I would head, head for because I knew there would be books signed by great creators uh, for sale. Um, I have swung by the CBLDF uh, booth myself. Um, I believe in the CBLDF. Um, and there are people that have felt rocked by the revelations and also the way that prior to you coming on board, how it has been the question has to be, um, going forward, what do you feel um, can be done to repair that kind of relationship? And um, certainly during your tenure, um, what do you see that you will be doing to do so? One of the, I, you know, I teach ethics. In fact, tomorrow night, it's my first ethics class of this semester is going to start. And the way I always start my ethics class is I, as I talk about what ethics is. And people tend to think about ethics in terms of a set of rules for doing right and wrong, but it's actually a lot more fluid than that. Um, one of the core things in ethics is that there's a correspondence, there's a match between what people say they are and what people actually do. Make sure that it corresponds with they, their words and their actions. And I think part of the reason we have this breakdown in trust is there's a sense that um, what the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund said it was, what it, how it presented itself in terms of the breadth of its mission, in terms of the sort of things it did, uh, non-disclosure agreements, all that sort of thing, um, they were inconsistent with what it was actually doing. We said we were for speech, we were banning people from taking, from saying certain things. You know, that's, that's a very fundamental rift, and you never want to do that, and they did that. Uh, and so I get why the trust is broken. So it's going to be my priority is restore the man to what we say we are, and what we actually do. And that is going to take some time. And I get it. You know, uh, one of the first things I did, and I hope, I, I hope if, if, if this is not what's happened, then let me know and, and clean it up. But, you know, we're not doing direct fundraising outreaches right now. I said that, that just, let's stop that for a while. We just, what we have to do is reestablish who we are, explain who we are, do certain things, make sure that people see that what we do matches who we are in terms of our internal reforms, in terms of policies, in terms of our procedures, in terms of our transparency, uh, in terms of our mission, uh, and in terms of our programs. And we just do this for a while and reestablish that trust. Uh, I, I 
if, if, you're, if your trust has been broken by this, there is nothing that I can say now that will restore it. The thing that's going to restore it or that will try to help restore it over time is to continue to help the comics community and the things that we're here to do and to do that again and again and again in new ways, in bigger ways, uh, in ways some of it will be quiet because there are certain things about client confidentiality that you don't We've actually started helping people again. Uh, it just there's certain things that you can't reveal just for client confidentiality. Um, but, uh, but we're going to be doing things. Uh, and I hope that you will see over time that uh, we're back and we're better than before. But again, I know this isn't instantaneous because it's the nature of ethics not to be instantaneous. So the, the best thing I can do is say to anybody, you know, if you have, if you have any needs in this, uh, particularly people from marginalized communities, people who uh, have, are concerned about their access to the comics community, access to publishing, uh, access to legal help, whether you're a journalist, whether you're a creator, whether you're you know, a retailer, whether you're a consumer and you feel like you can't get access to certain things because of certain legal problems, reach out to us and we'll see what we can do. Um, I can tell you the one answer you're not going to receive is, well, we can't do that because we only work with the First Amendment. Because as long as I'm there, that's not going to be the answer. <laughs> so in terms of that communication, which I personally believe is the groundwork, is the, is the foundation to any organization. Um, it is an, a, an open and free dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, where is the best place for people to reach out to you? Um, is there a, 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 a URL or is there an email address that people can yeah, sure. reach out? Uh, you can email me directly at uh, jeff.trexler at cbldf.org. That's J-E-F-F dot T. R E X as in xylophone L E R at cbldf.org. Or if you don't want to go through the organizational email and I get it, go to my other email, which is jeff.trexergmail.com. Uh, happy to answer there. I also, as you know, I also interact with people on social media, uh, particularly, you know, if I happen to not know song lyrics, <laughs> I will, I will, I will uh, answer questions about that. Uh, but, but I will, I will answer any questions you have. Um, if you have any complaints, just let me know. Uh, if there are things that you think I should know that maybe I don't know yet, I want to know that. I, any information, any of your concerns, any of your recommendations, send them to me. Anything you want me to pass on to the board, I will pass it on to the board. Uh, this is all about transparency. This is all about access. Uh, this is all about helping the comics community. And uh, to do that most effectively, uh, I definitely want to hear from you. Thank you. Um, we've got um, one more question from Omar Hassa, and then I've got a, um, a comment from Michael Dooley. Um, we've got Omar Hassa who's asking, um, would you consider employing an outside review panel to rule on what, uh, if the board is doing, is not out of line? Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, for example, uh, with respect to outside review panel, one way that this could be handled, commonly handled, is through an ethics committee that is that has people on it who are not, you know, either members of the fund or they're members of the fund, but not part of the board or not part of management. Uh, there are ways to bake this into the organizational infrastructure so that you always have an outside voice. Uh, like I said, it's a role I've played. It's a role I've helped others play. And it's something that I think the Legal Defense Fund would definitely benefit from. You know, because remember, you know, when I talk about the way things are traditionally done in terms of allocation and, and People, you know, hire experts or board members don't have time to look at anything. They're, they're counting on people. That board, a, a, an effective board is counting on people to highlight the th information that they need to know. 
Uh, it's just that often information is not conveyed in a very effective way. So we're going to try to heighten that effectiveness. Uh, we're trying to try to make sure that the board has the information that it needs, and having outside voices is going to be, an, is going to be a crucial part of that. Right, and um, I'm not entirely sure about how I can put the next comment up properly because number one, it will actually block most of our faces off. Great. And not only that, but the second half is really giving me due props, which I don't, <laughs> I, I, I'll take, but let's see what it says. Uh, this is Michael Dooley. Thank you so much, so much, Jeff, for all you're doing here. With all uh, CBLDF's supremely outstanding accomplishments, your appointment should be considered one of the most important actions this organization has taken. And thank you, Leonard. This has been the absolute best of your Englishman in San Diego podcast that I've li listened to. For myself, thank you very much indeed um, for your comments, Michael. I mean, I felt it was an important topic uh, to talk about. It's certainly outside of my usual wheelhouse. Um, this isn't what I usually talk about, but I felt um, with the opportunity to talk to Jeff, um, it, it was uh, something that I felt needed to be discussed. And I personally hope that it has helped people understand more about the organization, about what its remit has been and what it can be, and also the future of what uh, the CBLDF um, can look forward to. Um, is there any other last comments that you'd like to make, Jeff? Anything? I mean, certainly in terms of, yeah, the future of the, the organization. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the short-term uh, nature of your position. Do you, have, do you have a ballpark of how long you feel that you'd be in the in the position? I think it's really going to come down to, uh, it really is going to come down to what we do. So uh, this is something that we could end up doing this for a few months uh, and could, if everything goes well, then it's just going to be time for me to go. But it's not going to go, you know, it's not going to be going into 2022. That's definite. Uh, maybe some, some a bit into 2021, uh, but we're not looking at anything uh, really long term. The, the, the aim here is to do this as efficiently and effectively as possible. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, I like you know, making myself obsolete in these things. The idea is that you're going to be getting to a point where you're going to wonder, hey, let's move on. Let's get on to somebody else. And if that's the case and I start hearing that, that's wonderful. That means things are going exactly the way they're supposed to be because we have an amazing staff. We have an amazing team. Uh, we're going to, I hope, be bringing on even more amazing people, uh, both to the board and, and throughout, uh, throughout our, our workflow. And um, that it's, it's going to be a wonderful day for me uh, when I'm no longer needed. That that really is the goal. Um, but again, if I had any last thing, is that when you saw, I saw my email address up there, uh, definitely take that seriously. Uh, I, I, if you have, if there's anybody who wants to reach out and say anything about the organization, uh, what's happened, what's going to happen, anything you want me to convey to the board, I'm here and I will do that. That's That's my pledge to all of you, to all of the community. Fair enough. For myself, I feel that the goal of any changes moving forward must be twofold. Number one, mm -hmm. to restore the uh, reputation of the CBLDF um, in terms not only about um, the behavior of the, the staff, but also just the, the cases that it's taken on, the, the remit of the organization, just to restore faith uh, mm -hmm. in the, the organization. Um, but I, I really do hope that um, the people that have been slighted 
that have been hurt, that have been abused, uh, that have been marginalised. I'm hoping that the actions move, moving forward, that the, the repair that is done to the organisation will allow them to sleep better at night, to come to, to some kind of peace with the organization. I don't think there will ever be any kind of peace with the person that's done this, and it shouldn't. there shouldn't be. But with the organization, I'm hoping, if anything, bridges can be made mm. and um, relationships restored. And like I say, I just hope that people who have been hurt can sleep better at night. That's because they have not been able to sleep for many many years and that's been the, the that's been the the most painful bit of the whole um whole thing going forward i i share Jeff, that i share that 100 and thank you so much for saying that i share that 100 jeff i want to say thank you very much indeed for coming on um like i say this is not being the usual um talking uh, let's put it this way usually i'm quite grinny and happy and cracking jokes but that's not that's not this not this episode it's not what it's been mm -hmm. all about but thank you very much indeed for coming on i i wish you all the best in your time with the cbldf and i look forward to the organization going forward and um thank you very much indeed for coming on and thank you so much for having me here and and thanks to all of you for listening and i look forward to reading your comments thank you excellent thank you um Thanks again to Jeff for, for coming on. Um, if you do want to reach out, his address is right there on the the screen. That's not only his CBLDF address, but also his Gmail. Um, uh, I don't, <laughs> I'm not too sure about him putting up his personal email address, but that's what he's done. And I understand that he uh, wants any and all conversations. Um, and of course, if you do have anything that you want to add to the conversation, put it in the comments below. Um, I'll be monitoring any um, people who have been will be watching this after the fact who perhaps have not watched this live um, and any comments I will pass on to Jeff of course. Thank you very much indeed for watching this particular episode of Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego we're back again on Sunday talking to James Tin and the fourth, looking forward to that conversation, it's going to be an interesting one, the man is on fire at the moment, uh, he's got a book coming out uh, called Department of Truth uh, which I don't know how uh, relevant to this particular conversation but I'll, I'll say that the actual book itself is fantastic it, the Joker War is on fire something is killing the children he's an amazing writer and I'm looking forward to talking to him we're also going to be doing <laughs> this was a, arranged uh, today we're going to be doing a special in, uh, incidental episode on Monday uh, we're hopefully going to be joined uh, by some great creators who are organizing a Kickstarter at the moment and um Declan Shalvey is going to be taking part in the conversation. More information about that over the course of the next couple of days. But um, do keep your eyes on the channel. Hit uh, like and notify. Hit the, um, the subscribe button. And by all means, it will let you know when we do these incidental episodes, these drop-ins outside of our usual show, which is on Sunday, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT. That has been our show today. Thank you very much indeed for watching. Take care, stay safe, and hopefully we'll see you on Sunday for another Talking Con, a cup of tea from Englishman in San Diego.